loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Cassie Underwood. Cassie's published in the New York Times and the Atlantic, among others. She holds an MFA in literary nonfiction from Columbia University, where she taught in the undergraduate writing program. In 2012, she won Exhale's Pro Voice Storyteller Award in recognition of her personal essays on abortion. And in 2013, she traveled across the U.S. sharing her journey after abortion in an effort to bring peace to the abortion war. Described by audiences as part storyteller, part public speaker, and part performance artist, Cassie talks on the spirituality of abortion, addiction recovery, personal transformation, and social justice. She's the author of the newly released book, May Cause Love, An Unexpected Journey of Enlightenment After Abortion. And she lives with her husband in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she's a student at Harvard Divinity School and co-host of the podcast Spiritually Blonde. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I appreciate it. It's so good to be here. So good to have you. And uh, as I was telling you before we went on, I I just appreciated your book so much. Uh, both because it's so beautifully written and and funny and moving and deep, but because this conversation, you know, as a grief worker, um, uh, grief, I guess, connected to abortion is is just a uh, no woman's land in a way. Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy to be able to to talk about um, women's experiences in that in that realm, and especially the day happening to be uh, International Women's Day. Yeah, I love this timing. Um, yeah, I, I thank you so much for your kind words. I really, really appreciate it. And I did experience um, grief being kind of like no woman's land um, or this kind of prescribed space that I had to find my way out of and into my own experience after my abortion. Could you talk just a little bit more about what you mean there? I mean, I I have ideas, you know, I'm I'm a person who just personality-wise is very geared towards commonality. What are the ways in which different uh, people with wide differences also intersect and and so of course the um, pro-life pro-choice divisions disturb me because uh, I'm because of the way I'm oriented but what what did you mean there the yeah, difficulty I, go ahead go ahead yeah that was well, it yeah yeah um I think that I well okay so let's back up so I grew up in Kentucky and um and it was very southern um and I remember when I was a little girl, we were driving in the car and I looked out the window and I saw this billboard of a sad, sad woman. 
and it was a billboard about abortion. It was an anti-abortion billboard. And I remember as I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to be? What am I supposed to be? Thinking, I definitely don't want to be that. I don't mm. want to be this, a sad, sad woman on a billboard. Um, and, and so then I had to figure out, like, what am I going to be? And I decided I was going to be a pure woman, a marriageable woman, um, and a magical mother. I was going to be all these things. Um, and then I had to become, so that was like when I was a little girl, I was like, okay, I have to be like this, this very pure, um, pure person. And because the danger of sex, so immediately it made sex dangerous, it made sorrow dangerous, because when we get these messages that if we're sad, then we're crazy, um, and we get messages that if we're, that we're supposed to be both pure um, and sexual at the same time. So there are all these messages around, um, about, around mind, emotion, um, and body, and sexuality, um, like right from, the, from early age. Um, and... So at that point, you know, or a little bit later, I started drinking to kind of numb that confusion of how am I supposed to be? I don't know how to be in the world. I don't know how to be that perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the and so when I um, found myself in college and um, I was I moved a thousand miles up north. I moved to Vermont and I went to college there, and all of my friends were like. So different than I was. They were like I was like the vir- the token virgin on my um, on my university floor, um, and I was like, wow, maybe I was making, maybe I was trying a little bit too hard back at home. Maybe that was some kind of Bible Belt thing, and um, and so I fast forward um, a couple years later, I'm in this place where I'm both um, dating somebody who's who's like um, in the military. Um, and he's like representing this like attempt to be that pure, like sane self because I'm I'm connecting purity and, and sanity, and then um, and, and happiness. And then this other guy who's this um, who is this uh, he's addicted to drugs, and I'm an, I was had this alcoholism that was budding, and I just um, found myself pregnant. And um, after a, a month and a half of knowing him, and what happened. Um, I immediately knew what I what I uh, needed to do, but after my abortion, um, I was I had kind of connected sorrow, grief, and um, and like being that person on the billboard, being the person I didn't want to be, um, and then I but then I was going to be the strong person afterward, and that meant not feeling emotions. Um, mm. So I felt like there was something around being like strong and empowered and not feeling things like not feeling grief, not recognizing loss because I was, oh, I'm over it. We live in, you know, that kind of get over it culture. Um, I mean, it really said it was like, it was like a whole state of being that I now had to embody of being like without, without negative feelings. So That's so interesting. That, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting, uh, being someone who works with and talks about grief all the time. That's the opposite of what grief likes. Grief likes to be heard and get to feel how it wants to feel. (laughs) You know, it sort of likes to be um, given full permission. And something about that experience was the opposite of that. Because, of course, 
most loss experiences have more than one thing to them. So, you know, I'm thinking there was loss and there was also gain in some sense. You know, it was it was a complicated, a complex experience to be having that you were kind of having to diminish. Exactly. And um, and when I actually tr- like wanted to start talking about it, because I reached, you know, I started to build this identity around strength means not caring. Strength means not feeling um, and definitely not grieving. And so when that started to break through where I couldn't pretend anymore and the impact was so, was so isolating and painful, um, I didn't find a space for it in, in the, definitely not in the political dialogue, um, which was really the only place where I saw people talking about abortion. So except if I wanted to be anti-abortion. And then there was plenty of space to talk about grief. But it came with, it seemed to me, the requirement of saying that, um, of shaming abortion or saying that I had sinned or done or made, uh, you know, it just came with a whole litany of requirements. Um, and I didn't want to meet those requirements. I wanted to have that, what you're talking about, that freedom of, of expression of what I was feeling. Although I didn't know it yet. I did not know it yet. I had to discover that because right. I was terrified of it. There's a little paragraph in your book that stood out to me. All I wanted was a bunch of women to sit with me in the same room and tell me they'd had an abortion, even though they wanted to be mothers and shared my moral qualms and tell me how to get okay. After an hour of reading online, I felt like nobody would level with me. Everything I read registered as political propaganda. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah, go ahead. That just really, um, uh, you know, because I'm so interested in story as a way of communicating things, and that experience of you looking everywhere for a voice that sounded like your voice and, and not getting that anywhere just really impacted me. Yeah, a voice that sounded like my voice. That really was what I was looking for. Um, I'd been to the library, too, and what I found were, like, two different kinds of books. I found two books of essays. I wanted to find a memoir, and I found one book of essays where everybody felt relief after their abortions, and the other book of essays where everyone felt regret. And I was like, mm, okay. So <laughs> two choices, relief or regret. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. Um and it was so interesting, you know, we always talk about, I think that there's a lot of messaging around, like, teenagers, they're so young and naive. I didn't feel naive, and I still don't think of myself as being naive at that time, because I could, I could sense that I was being fed um, either sanitized information or potentially over, overblown information um, about what I would experience afterward. And I just really want, like, I really wanted that group of women so badly. Um, and when I didn't find them... Except, you know, in this, um, I found, I found like strong women who, and they were the women who were identifying, to me, these are the women I found, who are identifying as as pro-choice. And that's, I was in the North and that was most of the people I knew. But we weren't talking about how it felt. We were talking about our rights. So I like, you know, you learned, I put a shell over what I was feeling because I was so desperate to talk about it with anybody, even if I had to like, leave out some details of my experience. Well, it made me think of, you know, I have three daughters, and I think they would all say probably the same thing. Um, 
that they are absolutely pro-choice and would not want to be in the position where they had to choose an abortion. Well, that automatically means that there's going to be feelings about it, right? Yeah. But once once someone actually has an abortion, then you're supposed to be completely fine with it. And that doesn't that's, make sense to me. I know. <laughs> Obviously. That's, that was the exact same thing that I experienced. So I'm like in the I, I'm like wait a minute, I'm already feeling I was like I know I'm pre- you know, I know I'm pregnant right now and I sh- and that's probably part of it, but I know I'm going to have I always wanted to be a, a mother when I, you know, that was the identity that I chose for myself um, growing up, and I'm already feeling emotions, so of course I'm going to feel them afterward. Um, it just makes sense. It doesn't say it's not about a political statement. It's just a human it's, experience. Absolutely. I I would like people to hear a little bit the voice, uh, your voice in the book, and um, we could just go right right there with the section on the abortion itself. Um, okay, because sure. that sort of lets us into your experience so so well. Okay, great. So I'll go ahead and start reading. Don't tell me if it's twins, I said. Here comes the speculum, the doctor replied. The nurse offered me her hand, encouraged me to dig in with my fingernails. I wanted to tell her that I had captained the cheerleading team in high school, edited the school newspaper, worked two coffee shop jobs when I was 17 to save up for vintage fake furs. I was a good Christian, a virgin until last year. This was not supposed to be happening to me. I'm in the honor society, I said. You'll have a big life, the nurse replied. The suction machine droned like a hairdryer. I'm blacking out, I shrieked. You've got to breathe, honey, said the nurse, giving my hand a squeeze. I'm hot. Please take off my socks. Take off her socks, my boyfriend hollered. The nurse whipped them off. Afterward, I curled up on the crinkly exam table paper. Somebody rolled away a table with a tiny red gob in a jar, my almost baby. I shook violently, viciously. Sliding off the table in my hospital gown, I pulled my underwear halfway up my legs and fumbled with an inch-thick pad, trying to stick it on the crotch of my underwear. I tugged my bell sleeve sweater over my head and then headed down the hall. Somebody handed me a brown paper bag with three packets of birth control in it. Somebody opened the front door of the clinic for me. I would dream of babies for the next six years. I would have babies and kill them, have babies and lose them, have babies and care for them the way I cared for my little brother. I would believe every reason for my abortion was absurd. I would nearly go insane. I would start my car and drive toward a psych ward in Texas and then turn back around. I wasn't insane. I was sad. I wish sadness took less work to heal, but healing would take everything I had. That sort of defines grief as I understand it, that it, it demands, if you say yes to it, it, it demands a lot, doesn't it? Mm, yes, and it gives a lot. And it gives a lot, sometimes not immediately. No, <laughs> no not immediately. You just stick with it. It's really one thing that really struck me throughout the book is your drive to keep, you know, whether certain things worked, didn't work, uh, helped, didn't help, your drive to keep looking for what would carry you through to a different place about that experience, that you were very diligent. Was was that you kind of 
to start out with, or is that something that this experience generated more in you? I definitely think it generated more in me because it forced me. I I was so defensive. I mean, I was I was probably way more defensive than is even on the on the page. Um, that I had to force myself because it was like my ego did not want me to grieve because if I grieve, I get the gifts of grief. If I don't grieve, then I have to stay small and I have to stay shut down and just be a mechanical robot throughout my life while, you know, of achievement. That's, that was what I was looking at. And it wasn't even, it wasn't that fun anymore. Um, and so it was like I had to really... Um, use every tool I had to to seek whatever each experience could teach me, even if like 90% of it didn't feel good to me or right to me. Well, that's an important point, and we'll just get a little start on this and then come back after the break, but you tried things that cross the boundary uh, for instance, the Catholic retreat that you went to and then the, you know, California tour are, are real contrasts in terms of the viewpoints of the people you were engaging with, but you sort of tried it all. And mm-hmm. it, the impression you gave is that it all, each thing gave you something that was part of the picture. And I, I'd like to come back and talk about that after the break. Great. So, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Cassie Underwood at Cassie, that's K-A-S-S-I, Underwood.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cassie Underwood, author of May Cause Love, a book about an abortion she had at the age of 19 and her own very extensive search for support and uh, path of growth following that. And before the break, Cassie, we were just beginning to, uh, I was commenting on all the different things that you did to... uh, guide yourself through your experience or um, allow your grief, some very, very distinctly different things that you tried. Um, The book read to me like some other books I've read by journalists where they try everything because that's part of the investigation, but also very uh, emotional. And I wondered if you could talk about some of the different things you did and the impact they had on you. Oh, sure. Um, what was so interesting to me is when I looked back, I could see how each each experience prepared me for the next. Mm-hmm. Um, they created a context so that the next piece would be possible, the next piece of grief. So the first thing I did was, I mean, depending on where you where someone sees the journey beginning, I'll just start with the um, with the Buddhist ritual called Mizuko Kuyo. And the reason I loved it was because of this word, Mizuko. So I was really used to these politicized words, like um, the word baby has been politicized in the context of abortion. The word embryo has been politicized. So the choice of words can imply, can be taken as implying someone's political um, perspective. And I really needed for this to be my own experience that was not, a political um, comment. I just wanted it to be my own personal experience. And the word Mizuko means water baby. And it came from Japan. Um, and the word Kuyo means respect. So the Mizuko Kuyo ritual is an experience where you, you do a ritual. I went to, um, to a Buddhist uh, church or temple. They called it a church in um, New York City. And um, and I just acknowledged that it happened. Like, I acknowledged that I'd had an abortion, and I got to use this word water baby. Um, and that was so powerful just to acknowledge it. And it felt so um, intense and scary to me because I, this was something I just carried by myself for so long. And here I was, like, standing in front of this um, this Buddhist priest, like, acknowledging it for the first time and having, like, a language finally and that was so important, just to do that in a formal context. Um, yes. Just, just like admitting, like, oh my gosh, I actually might need to heal from this mm. or around this. Um, and and then the next place I went was a Roman Catholic retreat for um, for people who've experienced abortion, um, and that was totally different. Um, the Japanese Buddhist ritual was. Uh, was created in a, in Japan, there's not an abortion war like in America. It's, um, there's like a li- tiny, tiny, um, 
um, like anti-abortion group there, but it's not, um, it's, it's just not the same explosive uh, topic that it is in America or experience. It's really common there, and it's common here too, one in three, um, about one in three women that will experience abortion in her lifetime as the number goes up and down through the years. Um, so the next place I went was this Roman Catholic retreat. And I did not expect for there to be any um, anything that felt like judgment there because I didn't see, or even on abortion, because I didn't see how healing and judging an experience could fit in the same place. Mm. Um, I just, you know, and maybe maybe there is. I mean, of course, you know, and part of healing can sometimes mean coming to a to a realization that oh, I. I made the wrong choice or I could have done something different here, not even around abortion, but any kind of healing can involve that. It's just the way that my, my experience in the past had always been that the person who's healing comes up with that, not the people who are helping them to heal. Yes. Um, and so, um, and so that was like, like as soon as I got there, I was like, Oh no, because I wasn't expecting it, but I had, but I had made a choice to stay because I had this little, this person in my mind, the whole journey. And this was like this reader who need, I was like made up in my head. I was like, okay, I have to do this for a woman who, who can't do this, who can't go on this journey. I have to go on this journey for her. Um, so that this will be available for her so that she can heal if she needs to. Um, and so I stayed like for this invisible, this person that I didn't, I didn't even know who it was. Um, Mm. And so I just made myself stay and figure out what I could learn. And what was so, do you want me to tell you like the, the kind of like story that was the big takeaway for me there? Absolutely. Okay. But first I want to say, that's such a remarkable thing to be aware of the service this would give as you were immersed in it yourself. And to use that as a kind of... um, um, inspiration, invitation to keep going and not to reject anything, to try everything. That's, yeah. That stands out to me. Well, and I got that because um, I got sober when I was um, 20. And what I found out there was that my, no matter what has happened in my life, my experience will be able to benefit other people if I can... Um, if I can really examine it and heal from it. So, um, so I got that from somewhere and then I just took it with me on the journey mm, and it was yes. so helpful because I would have so many times I would have given up. I don't think I would have even had the courage to do it at all. Um, if I didn't have that little piece where it was like, okay, somebody, this could help somebody. Um, so, okay. So I'm at the Catholic retreat and, um, and they have me, they're, they're having us do this, um, this ritual where we're passing a rock around the room. And it's based on that Bible story where, um, where Jesus draws a line in the sand. They're, they've pulled this, this woman um, um, to, in front of Jesus, and they say that, he, um, they say that she's an adulteress. And, um, and they're, like, you know, basically trying to test him and see if he'll... Um, if he'll say to stone her and he draws, he draws a line on the, on the ground and he says, um, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. 
And so we're passing this rock around, and we're supposed to represent um, that we are going to give up um, um, shame. And, um, and so I'm getting very mad because I'm thinking, I'm still in this, like, very, I'm holding on to resentment because I didn't know yet that resentment and anger keeps me from, it's like a defense against grieving. Hmm. Um, and so I was like held in this, I was in this holding pattern. So that was why it was so important that I go there because I didn't know that I had this resentment that I was holding on to, um, and that I was using that as an excuse not to do the messy work of grief. And so I, I, um, the stone comes to me and I'm really mad and, and they, uh, they tell, and I'm thinking like, why don't you hold on to the stone and, and drop it when you're done, you know, judging me. I'm just coming up with all these little um, clips in my head. And they tell us to take a stone and to, with us um, it, for, the, for the retreat, and we can drop it when we feel like we're no longer judged. Um, and I spend, like, a lot of time just, like, growing in anger. And I get all the way, like, I, I get all the way back to my bedroom that night and I've got the stone and I'm so, I'm like seething because I've heard them um, say things that I'm taking really personally. Like they're talking about the evils of abortion and that's just their belief. It's no, it's like, you know, I don't have to take it on as my own. Um, right. I was, I was so mad. I mean, I just, cause I was using this as a, as a defense. Um, and so I start writing in my journal and I'm like, they're so dogmatic and judgmental. Like they think they're more spiritually advanced than I am. And, then I crossed out they, and I wrote I, and I was like, mm. I'm so dogmatic and judgmental. I think I'm more spiritually advanced than they are. And that's when I could drop that rock of shame, once I let go of my judgment of them and saw that I was just, um, it was me judging them for, for what I thought was judging me. And then I could get to grief. That's a, that's an amazing moment, huh? To to drop that, yeah. In in favor, off. and and it does. Uh, I I really like that you're identifying that dogmatism is a defense against grief because I do think that that operates frequently. Um, that that instead of just feeling our feelings about the losses and the unpreferable things that happen, we kind of get hard and judgmental instead. Yes. Yes. And I totally <laughs> went there. I mean, I just, cause I was using anything I could to avoid grief. Cause if I grieve, I'm free, you know, and I'm like going to be gentle and, and um, more connected to people. Now I have tons of friends who are, who are, um, they, they don't, they're pro-life and I can be friends with people who, who have different beliefs than I did. But before I was like using it as a reason not to grieve and to be disconnected from human beings. The other thing that occurs to me is you had, um, you know, one thing I believe a lot is that um, it's hard to grieve if you're, if you can't kind of form and maintain a, a relationship with what you've lost and of course, that's obvious. Let's say your mother dies. You know, you don't want to just try to forget your mother. <laughs> you know, right. but right. but it seems to me like when you did the Buddhist ritual, you established a relationship to that unformed being. You know that that um, 
idea, but mm-hmm. you know that 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 sort of gave you a way to to be connected to the part of it that was a loss. Would that be fair to say? Totally. Yes, it did, and it gave, and I needed to experience that in a space that seemed like it was not even that it was so unfamiliar because all the other familiar spaces seemed politicized to me. And that's why it was so important that it happened in this place I'd never been to before, a a Buddhist church in in New York City. It was just um, completely separate from everything that reminded me of this this, like more public conflict or of feminism or spirituality and religion because religion and spirituality mean a lot to me. Um, And so I I was conflating all these different ideas in my head. And so when I got there, I could finally make that connection with the, with, as you say, the unformed being so that I could really begin to grieve. And, um, and the, the reverend, um, he said that, um, that this, he, he gave this being a name, um, and the name was guiding light. And hmm. he said, the, the Mizuko is your guide on the path to enlightenment. So then it not only is that my connected, but it also becomes this guide for me um, as I move through all the stages of, of, um, of experiencing my emotions, getting into my body. That's a lot what it was about um, and connecting with people and being open that, it, that this is part of my life experience. Yes. You know, I feel like it's very important to mention here that you weren't someone who hid in the first place that you had had an abortion. I I wonder if you'd share that part of the book that starts, I talked about my abortion all the time, because that sort of, to me, describes what was missing, even in being open about it. Uh, And and that seems important as well. Totally. And do you want me to read that whole section? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. I talked about my abortion all the time. This is, this is like right afterwards. I talked about my abortion all the time. I told businessmen seated on the next bar stool, classmates, librarians, gas station attendants. I backpacked through Italy, Austria, Spain, and France and found people like you and me everywhere. I even kept in touch with my ex-boyfriend, the, semi, the semi-father, though he and I lived thousands of miles apart by then. On the third anniversary of my abortion, he sent me an email to let me know he had a girlfriend and that she was six months pregnant with their child. He named their daughter, his daughter Jade, the same name I'd suggested for the baby he and I didn't have. Dressed in a pencil skirt and high heels, I walked to the office bathroom and collapsed in a heap on the floor. I thought, F him. I thought, I could have had the baby after all. I thought, please quit crying and stand up before someone finds you here. I was 22. I finally had what I thought it took to raise a child, a college degree, a handle on my drinking, houseplants. My ex and his girlfriend had become pregnant in a situation that bore a striking resemblance to ours. They didn't have, a, have bachelor's degrees or sobriety or a home, but this is what changed everything for me. They had the baby anyway. So I had to ask myself the same question you asked me, perhaps rhetorically. What if I didn't have to terminate my pregnancy? Over the next three years, I tried to ignore the question. I curled up in bed eating canned salmon rich in omega-3 fatty acids known to fight depression. My brain started attacking me. I thought about trying to meditate. I blared Access Hollywood instead. On paper, I had the life I had in mind when I deferred motherhood. Comfortable salary, fancy business cards, 
cross-country moves, dates with weirdos, but it hadn't delivered on the promise of fulfillment. The right side of my face bloomed with cystic acne induced by secret rage. I routinely pulled over on the side of the road to double over with my head between my legs during spells of free-floating abortion panic. Nightmares of children invaded my sleep. I told no one that I was suffering, even though I wasn't ashamed of my abortion. Lots of my friends had told me they'd terminated pregnancies in high school or college or even yesterday morning. I never hid mine, not for one day, but I did hide my thoughts and feelings about it. Here was the good news. If I'd had a free choice about whether to keep my accidental pregnancy, then I also had the agency to create what I needed now, a roadmap for recovery. You know, that makes me think about how um, most of us originally come to grief kicking and screaming. Like, (laughs) we allow it because we can't help it. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Because the weight of it just gets too big to to hold back, in a sense. And that that passage feels that way to me. You just couldn't not. Exactly. I mean, I would, if I could have avoided it, I would have. I tried really hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what else can I try? Do. I ran out of tools. I was like sober. I didn't have any. I'm like, what am I going to do? Uh-huh. Like, TV access Hollywood? I mean, <laughs> what else? <laughs> well, you get everything you want and be unhappy, you know, does get your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, I know. It's like the worst. It's the worst and the best because then you can find out that what you can really want and what really makes you happy. <laughs> More on that when we get back. It's time for our second break. You can get me at weatheringgrief.com and you can find Cassie Underwood at CassieUnderwood.com and it's K-A-S-S-I Underwood.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. 
I'm here with Cassie Underwood, the author of May Cause Love. And uh, we were talking before the break, Cassie, about how uh, it takes some practice to choose grief. Usually it chooses us first, you know, we can't get out of it. And then uh, for me, at some point along the way, I realized, oh, if I have losses, if I experience something as a loss, I want to grieve it because um, it it keeps the river flowing inside of me. It, it it makes everything better. But I think that is a hard learning, especially maybe in our culture. Oh, for sure, because we are living in this grief-negative culture where a lot of people are walking around with ungrieved grief. So if we start grieving in front of them, they're going to smack it down. That's what I learned on the journey. And that's what's so amazing about this show is that you're bringing it out into the open and, and also like showing that it's, it, grief is good. Grief is natural and it has, it contains gifts. It's like a tunnel with, with a lot of jewels at the end of it. Well, that's the thing. It does lead to something and it, and for, for sure it leads to a real sense of calling often. Like, mm. Look what you're doing with your life, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that that comes out of that experience in a way that's really meaningful. I remember when, when uh, we first spoke, you said that you've encountered some people who call themselves pro-life um, vehemently and in the course of listening to your presentation and your story and have actually... Um, softened their position and I thought that was really remarkable because that is such a very fraught um, conversation if you can call it a conversation often. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, it's been kind of amazing when I have spoken to people who are pro-life, whether whether that's in a classroom where I'm giving a presentation or even um, folks have been reading my book um, they do either uh, feel challenged or or tell me that they have changed their position or, um, yeah, I mean, that's really my experience has been, that, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, honoring that this was, um, for me, it was a life. Now, not all people experience, have that experience when they um, end the pregnancy, but for me, it was a life. And so I think just the idea of, oh, yeah, like there's this possibility of honoring that this was a, a life and a loss and, um, and that there's, a, there's a, a story and a, an experience of grief and, and also experience of coming out the other side and, um, and having that sense of calling that you're talking about and, and a bigger life than before. Um, I think that that just speaks, speaks to people. And it connects us because we all know what it's like to experience loss or to go through something that we never thought we'd go through or to um, make a really hard uh, choice. Even, even if we knew that it was the choice we were going to make, it still is like, oh, I never thought I was going to make this choice. So that by virtue of that, it becomes a hard choice. Right. Uh, especially the idea of um, never thinking you would have to be in that spot. And then, you know, Part of the part of the uh, importance uh, in terms of what led to that moment was you were not 
you were paying attention to birth control. I think there's a lot of um, to to not becoming pregnant, and mm-hmm. um, I'd say through a combination of nothing's foolproof and bad advice, that happened anyway. So, you know, yeah. sometimes those those kinds of things get very unilateral too. Um, that that somehow there's some inherent irresponsibility that leads to that place when often that's not the case. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes, you know, and even if it is, you know, inherent irresponsibility, God, haven't I had times where I, like, forget or mess up in my life and there are big consequences um absolutely you know yeah i'm not i'm not differentiating like different categories i'm just saying it's part of the frozen conversation there's no there's no nuance there's no individual story there's no um you know often we we kind of uh, minimalize whoever's on the other side from us i guess yeah, yeah, and I think I think that um, if we had room for people who've actually experienced abortion to be sharing their stories in the most in the most honest way they can, um, then we would we would get a lot more common ground um, faster. Because I do, um, you know, I've I've experienced. I know a lot of people who've who've um, told their stories have experienced that where they're still not getting um, the level of um, recognition that the that the conflict gets. Like if there's something that happens on the political front all over the news, a woman tells her story, it's like, you know, not necessarily going to be on the front <laughs> front page of anything. Um, uh, except on su- certain Facebook sites these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a exactly. A little bit more talk, actually. Um, but maybe still not necessarily from the point of view of the loss. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and I think that, that creating, I think I don't even think at this point my, my experience is that people who have experienced abortion, we're just going to have to be the ones to step forward and just tell the truth no matter what, you know, um, because there is so much social support for telling parts of the story but not the whole story, um, depending on what someone's, political persuasion is or to protect this belief or to protect that belief. And I think that um, my experience is just like, we're just going to have to stand up there and just tell the truth regardless of what, what the consequences are. Um, and, well, and, yes. And actually, you know, I do a lot of couples work and that's mm-hmm. the first step is being able to vulnerably share your truth. And it's the same, I think, in these kind of areas. Actually, that opens the heart of the other person. If you, if you let, if you share, and if you honor their sharing, it's a really good start. That's so <laughs> no. true, and that is so true. And I think it's it's paradoxical. We think that if we just tell the story the way people will feel comfortable and want to hear it, then we'll be safe. But my like my experience is if I tell the truth as it if as to the best of my ability without leaving out those those hard or tricky parts. People really do. They open up their hearts. And that's what happened when I was talking to people who are really, they really devout. They're not, um, abortion just makes them very uncomfortable, very sad. It breaks their hearts and they're against it politically. But when I told the whole truth without leaving out those parts that we use, that so often get left out to protect abortion rights, they, people totally were welcoming. I mean, it's like hugging them, you know? Yes, so I, yes. You know, it's like, it's amazing to be vulnerable. I, 
It is. It's like a magic key sometimes. So I don't want to leave without talking about a very radical thing you did, which was to go to several places in, in it happens to be California, my wonderful state out here, um, for various healings and bring your mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mom that seemed pretty yeah. radical to me. <laughs> Hey, you know what? She kind of invited herself, but um, I was really happy that she came. Ultimately, um, it was. Why was it radical to you? Tell what was what stood out. Um, well, I'm thinking. I I'm a mother of uh, my youngest is 23, my oldest is 36, about that age group, mm-hmm. and and we're very close. But I do not believe that they would enjoy having me along on a you know, rip your gut out, open open up your heart, um, uh, painful kind of adv- uh, journey like that. Mm-hmm. I think they would want to go and then tell me about it. Yeah, and um, that was my that was my original plan, and um, and it turned out that I didn't actually have the the finances to do. Like, to do <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> It was like my mom offered to come and she would um, pay for it because she had never been to California. So it's kind of funny. She showed up for this like mother-daughter road trip and I showed up with like, like, you know, brokenhearted. And just, I remember I was like stinging with pain and trying to hold it in because I didn't want to make her have a bad trip um, on the road in California. But I'm like in so much pain that I'm like snapping at her. You know, (laughs) speaking of defenses (laughs) against grief. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I didn't, there's so, and she also, um, the way that she was when when I was growing up, um, you know, she went through a lot, a whole lot with losing her mother when, um, when I was eight years old. And so, um, so I, you know, she had been through this deep grief, but also had been in the midst of working a lot and in, um, and raising me and my brother and, and, um, and being married to my dad. And, and so it was like, I had this, this grief and I don't know if she had, she had ungrieved grief, um, but she missed me cause I'd moved far away. So it was really com- complicated. Um, but it was so interesting cause it's hard for me to open up to my mom, um, and let her know that I need her, but I got to learn how to do that a little bit. Um, and so that well, that's very beautiful. Powerful. That's very wonderful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is it in the long run a wonderful yes. thing? Yeah. So it really stuck out to me. Maybe it's just because, you know, of of having daughters, but um it it just seemed so and the way that her experience interwove with yours was mm-hmm. was quite um I hope people will go read the book because it was very touching and and real that part too. So yeah. the end of that journey was you you connected with a woman named Ava, and I'd love to have you read that part of um, in, encountering her because it feels to me like that's the culmination in a sense. Yes, yeah, so this is Ava Torre Bueno, um, and uh, she's a, a abortion therapist in San Diego and um, with a, a Buddhist background. She motions, oh, and, and she also um, worked at Planned Parenthood for many years as a, um, a counselor. Okay. She motioned for me to take a seat on the couch. I cozied up with her book in my lap 16 years after it had first been published. 
How does your abortion come up in a problematic way for you? Ava asked me with a relaxed, soothing, direct tone of voice. She squared up to me in her office chair. It's a constant nagging sensation, I told her. Your heart is not at ease, Ava said. Five years of sobriety had made me raw and sensitive. When I was drinking, I was too cool to be sad. Now I was too sober not to be. This will sound dramatic, I continued, but I feel I will never become the person I want to become if I don't do all the emotional and spiritual work it takes to heal around my abortion. The problem is I don't know how to do the work. I need tools. Ava punctuated her speech with careful gestures and the occasional jazz hands. I think the problem is you have had a loss. You are afraid to grieve, so it keeps creeping up on you. I love that it wasn't a medical diagnosis. It was a human experience. Ungrieved grief. Grieving is scary, I said, especially when so many people don't get it, like most people talking about abortion in public. So far, I've heard two options. Grieve your heart out and then sign this affidavit and try to overturn Roe. I was referring to the pack of legal documents distributed at the Catholic retreat. Or don't grieve at all for a first trimester pregnancy termination in college that allowed you to pursue your education, career goals, and personal freedom. Well, Ava said, with my nearly 40 years of experience in this field, I'm here to tell you, some women have real, resp- real difficulty after this procedure, and it's our responsibility to take care of them. That's so, that's so beautiful, that last, it's our responsibility to take care of them. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I was at a grief workshop once and somebody talked about they had had an abortion I think like two or three decades before and that's what they were talking about even though someone in their life had recently died so um, the work you're doing is is just radically important and I I really appreciate um, getting a very short hour it feels like mm-hmm. to, to talk about it because um I think that's such a helpful message to women. They can make that choice, and it can be the right choice, and there can still be grief involved. Absolutely. And there, and there are communities online and across the country where women are getting together. And one of those is my Facebook page where we're bringing people together there. Um, and we're, there's really kind of this may-cause-love um, kind of a grassroots movement of, of women who are, um, who, been, who are either going to experience the journey themselves or they're going to stand guard for women who... For women who are. Through it. Yeah. Cassie, thanks for being with me to, today. I really Thank appreciate so it. And uh, you can find her at CassieUnderwood.com and on Facebook, as she just said. Next week, I'll have Kimberly Aquaviva on to talk about her new book, LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.